me to to trust in you and and turn to you as I as I uh, share the gospel this morning and and most of all help me to focus on your gospel and and your grace as we uh, as we look at your your scriptures this morning in Jesus name Amen. Uh, so um, many years ago, I worked in a bookstore, a Christian bookstore. Uh, actually, I've worked in several over the course of my life, and I, I've realized I can't work in bookstores because um, basically all I do is uh, spend every dime I make on books. Um, and, and so I was working in this bookstore, and, and one day we had this woman come in, and she was looking for books for her kids uh, who were young readers and, and looking for something kind of um, adventurous and, and imaginative, and, and uh, uh, I encouraged them to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Has anybody not read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe um, or isn't familiar with it? It is, it is one of my favorite series of books of all time. It is uh, just a great allegory. It was written by C.S. Lewis, who, of course, is the most quoted Christian author of the 20th century. Um, and so I sold this woman this, this, it was actually a set of books, and she went home and she started, like her kids started reading it, and I guess she started reading it, and about a week later, having sold it to her, she came back and found me and lectured me. Um, she was very angry. She says, well, this book has a witch in it, and there's magic, and there's a, you know, like, like talking animals. All of this stuff is satanic. I can't believe you sell this book in your store. And I, I kind of... I, I remember taking the return, and, and I, 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 was, I was flabbergasted. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, well, that's an allegory, you see? Um, and I, but I, there was no explaining it, and there was no discussing it. There was no nothing. I mean, she was absolutely furious with me. And, and it, I, I'm sharing this story partially because I, I, you know, it was so silly, um, but also because um, during my growing up years, uh, like like my early Christian years, actually, I am pointing to, but my wife can attest to this. There was this tendency, like throughout the 80s, to um, find the lure of Satanism in everything. Um, I don't know, are any of y'all familiar with this? I uh, and and you know where like oh well, I think my wife, if they they weren't allowed to watch the Smurfs because it was satanic. I mean. I, I, oh my gosh, you know, and I'm making fun of my in-laws now, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but I, I remember being told uh, when I first, the first time I walked into a Christian bookstore and I, I bought um, the first book I ever read, like the first Christian book I ever read was by Philip Yancey. And I, I remember talking to the attendant about music and the, the clerk in the store told me about all of the different popular bands that were hugely satanic. You know, like, oh, these guys worship the devil and every song's about Satan and everything else. Because there was this whole era where Satan was in everything. Um, y'all are familiar with this, right? This isn't an out there thing. I, I had a fellow yell at me because I, like a couple of years ago, uh, another, uh, another pastor, I had another pastor yell at me because I let my kids trick-or-treat. And, of course, trick-or-treating leads to worshiping the devil. Um, and I, I, I think that there's a danger... Like, we, we end up, as the church, kind of standing on both sides of this problem sometimes. Sometimes we overemphasize to the point of ridiculousness, right? Like, like my, my son dressing up as, um, you know, Robin a few years ago and going trick-or-treating didn't actually turn him into a Satanist. I mean, unless he's hiding it really well. And it is possible. 
um, but not very likely. Um, on the other end of that, we tend to downplay um, the presence of evil in the world and the personification of evil. Like, like we tend to not like talking about Satan as, as, a, as a real thing or even the idea of worshiping, you know, Satan. Um, and, and part of that is because, like, you would probably know if you were worshiping Satan, right? Um, we're coming to the spot in the temptations. We've been working our way through the desert temptations, um, sort of in our transition from summer to um, fall, uh, where we do Old Testament in the summer, and we work through some of the Deuteronomy passages. And now we're kind of moving into the fall where we do more New Testament. And this is a great set of texts, I thought, because it sits on both sides. It is Christ talking about the Old Testament um, with Satan. Uh, and so as we kind of kind of begin looking at this, I'm going to review the passage. It's not very long. I've done, we're basically up to four sermons now on 11 verses. Um, and so it, it might seem like a lot, but there's some cool stuff happening here. And so we're going to work through them. I'm not going to spend forever on it, but we're going to kind of touch base with this. Um, so Jesus has just been baptized, and this is that scene where Christ comes up out of the water, and the sky is open, and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and, and God announces, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He's quoting a, a, a coronation psalm. And so like, there's this moment of recognition that Christ is the fulfillment of you know, the, the covenant with David, and, and um, we see the Trinity all in one place. <clears throat> Sorry, my throat's kind of wonky this morning. I don't know what that's about. Um, and so um, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Um, which sort of goes without saying, right? I mean, I, I fast for half a day and I'm hungry. Um, so... Uh, the reason that he does this, now there's a whole lot of stuff that happens in the, in the book of Matthew in particular that it's easy to miss the point of because most of us aren't first century Jews, right? Um, and Craig isn't here, so I'm, I can't point out he's the only one old enough to be, um, but I'm hoping he's watching. <laughs> but, but in the first century, the Jewish people would know, um, like because they heard about the exodus all the time. The Exodus was the defining moment in sort of the national identity for the Jewish people. And they know they were brought out of Egypt. And like we know that Christ went to Egypt, like Jesus spent time in Egypt as a child, right? And was brought back. And so there's sort of this like parallel that happens there. And then he goes into the desert for 40 days. Now, we also know that in the Exodus, the, the Jewish people leave Egypt and they spend 40 years wandering around in the desert. And in that time, they made it their national pastime to, like, kick God off, right? Like, God gave them a rule, and they found creative and inventive ways to break it. And, and they found new ways to complain. And, in fact, like, you, know, you find instances where they're saying things like, man, I'm tired of eating manna. Don't you miss being a slave in Egypt? what? <laughs> you mean, you know, a slave, right? Like what? When they were killing your children, you remember that, you know, well, but it wasn't manna. You know, I mean, they were, they were insanely um, blind 
to God's blessing and God's hand in their lives. And so, like, this section is a parallel. And Christ is tempted with many of the things that the people were tempted with. And so, um, and there's a kind of a cool progression here, and we'll work through it. Uh, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Number one, he is a son of God because God told him. Um, but he's saying, well, look, if that's really who you are, make bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you can go and listen to this sermon if you're looking to get to sleep a little easier uh, tonight or something. But like you can sort of work through the ideas on this. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it in review. Um, so going on, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And so now these first two tests, and again, like we covered these over the last few weeks, but the first few tests, the first one is the temptation to focus on worldly needs and like the world and the substantial stuff around us instead of on what God is calling us to focus on, right? And that is a temptation everyone deals with, right? And like even, you know, I, I don't know about you guys, but I'll sit down to pray in the morning and I'll think, I don't have time to pray. I need to do this and do this and do this and do this, right? Or I will come to church in the morning and instead of like focusing on um, you know, singing and worshiping God, I'm thinking about um, what are we going to eat for lunch today? And do I really want to go to the mint or do I want to drive down to the Loma? Anybody do that? Not the meal thing specifically. I know everybody goes to the mint. Um, you know, but, but every other care in the world or every other concern becomes the first and foremost instead of God. And like, like this is this temptation. Pay attention to the world, not to God. Pay attention to what you need now, not what God has determined that you need. Like, trust your stuff. Don't trust God. And in the second instance, um, it moves from the world to, well, we've accepted that God is in control. Let's see what we can do with that. Let's use God a little bit, right? I mean, that's a temptation. And in fact, actually, if you walk into a Christian bookstore, um, having driven you know, probably 800 miles to get to one at this point. Um, but if you walk into a Christian bookstore, half of the books, or if you look at the top 10, I will just go with the top 10 bestsellers in the store. They always have that little section with the numbers. Like nine out of the 10 books are always um, written by folks who are telling you, if you want God to do the following things for you, here's how you manipulate him into doing it, right? Um, and you get you get authors who are doing this prosperity gospel thing. You know, oh, well, how do you get God to make you rich? Well, you do these things. How do you make God give you a better sex life? Here's how you do that, these things. Make God, um, you know, make you thin. Here's the special diet that God hides in the scripture for you to lose weight. Um, I, I pointed out on social media that book, because that's a real thing, um, was written by a fat guy. And, and a bunch of people got mad at me. How dare you make fun of your weight? And I'm like, well, his weight. No, no, just saying. Anyway, um, so like, how do you manipulate God? Like, so, or excuse me, the second temptation is, all right, God is there, but why don't you manipulate him? Why don't you make God do what you want? And Jesus answered him, 
It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. All right, so now we get to our passage for today. So we've had two temptations, world, manipulate God, and now it's going to be, who is this God person in the, like to begin with, right? Um, that's the temptation. I'm going to sort of tip my hand here. Um, but we all know this story, right? Um, so we'll dive into it. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kings of the world and their splendor. Now there are, oh my gosh, studying this text, I'm going to tell you, huge amounts of ink have been spilled in the discussion of, is this a real mountain and where is it? Um, and I'm going to tell you something really important about this. Like having read hundreds of pages on the topic this week, it doesn't matter. Got it? <laughs> it's probably the case that he's showing him Rome, right? And like, so a lot of people say, well, you know, it's this mountain or this mountain. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. It may be metaphorical. It may be a supernatural occurrence. The long and short of it is he is showing him everything worth having, like in the known world at the time and saying, like, check it out. It's all there. Right. Um, And I mean, this is like as far as ancient standards go, um, this is the period of the single largest empire in history. Right. I mean, in fact, actually nothing really except for maybe England at one point, nothing comes close to it in history. I mean, the, the Romans conquered everything and they held everything and they had power. They had strength. You could not stand up to them. You could not fight them. You could not resist them. They were going to get their way. Um, and so Satan takes him up there and he shows it all to him. Now, mind you, Satan is like a personality, right? He is a person in these texts. And it's important to note Satan is a person. There's a temptation in the church to make him the personification of evil or this, you know, whatever. But, like, in reality, Satan is a tempter. He is a person who tempts. Um, He is a fallen angel and all that other stuff. But, like, all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now, this is an insidious bit of temptation on a couple of levels. First off, it's a shortcut, right? It is perhaps the most tempting shortcut in the entire world, like history ever. And the reason that that is, is Christ knows he's going to get the entire world, right? Like having died on the cross and risen from the grave and being seated at the right hand of God the Father, like Christ is given authority over all of creation and like um, his enemies are made his footstool. He is going to get there. And God has promised him that he's going to get there. And that's not a small thing. Like he knows the plan. Jesus knows where he's going. There is no confusion or debate or discussion. He is going there. But to get there, he's got to go through the cross. To get there, he's got to be arrested. He's got to be betrayed by his friends. He's got to be humiliated, beaten, whipped, tried illegally, spit on, um, crown of thorn jammed on his head, hung naked in front of a crowd of people, um, nailed to a piece of wood until he like, like slowly died the most miserable, horrible death you could imagine. Um, And not just the physical part of it, God is going to pour his wrath out on Christ. Christ is going to have every ounce 
every ounce of punishment that you and I deserve poured out on him. And I, I had an argument with a guy earlier uh, today online about whether or not it was fear or despair or anxiety or what, um, anguish. But Christ, like this wasn't going to the beach, right? It's not even going to the dentist. Um, though I've gone to the dentist a few times and it felt pretty bad. Um, this is huge. This is so huge that later on we see Christ on the brink of it, watching his arresters coming down the mountain in the dark carrying torches, and he's praying and talking to God, and he's so overcome in the moment that, like, the blood vessels in his skin burst, and he bleeds, he sweats blood, like, like for, for anguish over what's coming. Um, what Christ endured was, um, on every level, like, unbelievable. It was enormous. And it was for you, right? It was for me. It was because it's because I'm wicked by nature. Because when I try to do the right thing, I do the wrong thing. Because I am, like, like it, to the core of who I am, um, like an object of wrath. And Satan says, listen, instead of doing that, just bow down once. He probably didn't even have to mean it. You know what I mean? Like, he didn't have to mean it. And... And the reason I say that is we see other instances where people had the opportunity to bow down and didn't. Like we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Benny uh, a while ago where they had the opportunity to bow down to this golden statue. And they just didn't do it because they're like, well, we can't do it because that would be worshiping something else. And God didn't give them the space to say, oh, well, do it, but don't mean it. Right? Straight up. Like no matter what he does in this situation, if he complies... Um, he gets everything. He gets to step over the cross. He gets the easiest pathway possible. Just bow down and worship me. Now, this seems like a huge thing, right? This is something I have heard people do on millions of occasions. I can actually say, well, maybe not millions. I, on many, many, many occasions. Um, I, I was once teaching a Bible study with a group of guys, um, and, and several of them were not believers. And one of them said, if God would just do this, I'd believe in him. Right? And what is that other than saying, God, you can have, like Jesus, I will give you my life if you'll just do my thing this one time. Anybody ever done that? God, if you would just, you know, I'd, I'd meet kids coming out of jail and they'd say, God, they'd say, oh, yeah, I prayed for God to get me out of jail. I'd say I said to God, like, if you just get me out of this, I will follow you. I mean, it's not even a very good kingdom, if you think about it, compared to, like, the whole world. Like, Satan is a pro at this, and we're really bad at it. Um, this is like when my daughter, who probably can't hear me right now because she's busy, um, my daughter would sometimes say, Dad, if you'll just do this, I'll give you my nickel. I'm like, well, I don't want your nickel. <laughs> and you're still going to clean your room. <laughs> you know, or you're still not going to watch TV or you're still going to, because like we don't have anything to offer God, like our lives, not really a great offer. Um, but we do this, you know, God, if you will just, you know, if you will just, you know, make my life perfect, if you will just make me rich, if you will just, and that's actually, um, a lot of these prosperity preachers, you, you get guys like Stephen Furtick or, uh, or whatever who say, you know, well, look, um, God will do these things, and that's why you should follow him, right? Like, that's, that's the lie. 
And it's the same lie that Satan throws out. But people fall for it all the time. You know, Stephen Furtick and Joel Osteen are bestsellers in Christian world, right? And they're bestsellers selling this lie. And it seems so obvious, right? It does. But it's a lie. And it's a lie that sounds really good and is easy to buy. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Um, and so his response is, Get away, and to quote scripture. Now there's something huge here, uh, because each and every one of us have this like, like, like we have a guide that's presented here. And that guide is really simple. Um, and it's actually emphasized, I believe, in the book of James, right? Like Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour, right? And he talks about, well, how do we respond to that? Resist him and he will flee from you. How do you resist him? You say, well, this is temptation. Go away and then quote scripture in response, right? Like this is what the truth is. And so, you know, there are times, one of my biggest temptations, and perhaps some of you guys have this, where I will get my mind set on something I want, um, yesterday, Jess and I went mattress shopping, um, and and we're looking at mattresses, and we laid down on a mattress in a store, and we were like, this is what heaven is going to feel like. I, I'm pretty sure that the mattress came with little people who were inside massaging your back, and it, it was, it was. I mean, they, they sucked clouds out of the sky and jammed it into a box for you to lay on. And, and we began discussing with the fella who was selling them. That nice, he was actually a really nice guy. And, and he had a specific job, and that was to get us to buy this thing. And when we began discussing the price, um, that mattress cost more than my car. Right? Probably at this point, if you added the values of my cars together, is that about right? No, not quite that. It costs more than my car. Um, and I turned to my wife and I said, you know, this would probably make our life better. This is what we need. And actually, my wife said, we're not spending more on a bed than we did on our car. And I said, we spend more time on the bed than we do in the car. <laughs> And it didn't work. <laughs> but there's this thing that happens in my head, and I think it happens in all of our heads, where we say, if I could just have that, I would be happy. Right? If I could just get that one thing, everything would be better. If I could just nail this one thing down in my life, everything would be perfect. If, you know, if I could just lose 20 more pounds, if I could just have this much money, if I could buy this car, if I could have this piece of equipment, if I could have this new toy, everything would be better. And that's what happens in my head, and I do it all the time. And, like, the real response is, like, hey, maybe coveting is not such a good idea, right? Because it's the root of all sin. Maybe worshiping something that's an object is a bad idea. Um, you know, it's to turn to Scripture and push it away because I'm being tempted to do something that would be terrible stewardship, right? Although a very comfortable version of terrible stewardship. By the way, I have a GoFundMe. Uh, I just wanted to make sure everyone was still awake. <laughs> but that's with a hot tub. Um, Christ, of course, is quoting Deuteronomy. Now, there's an amazing thing here. This is the third passage, or the third instance of temptation, the third passage that 
um, that Christ quotes, and every time he quotes Deuteronomy, he quotes Moses' sermon on why the Israelites screwed up in their 40 years in the desert, (laughs) because he learned from their mistakes. Um, And so he says, when, you know, this is, we're going to quote Deuteronomy here real quick. We're going to do a chunk of this sermon. So there's context. I don't want it to seem like I'm quoting out of context. When the Lord, your God, brings you into the land he swore to give your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, very nice, comfortable mattresses you did not buy, wells you did not dig. I'm sorry, I added that. That was horrible. And vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then you will eat and are satisfied. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God and serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and burns in anger against you. He will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. By the way, does that sound familiar? As you did in Manasseh. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord and the stipulation and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, that it may go well with you, um, and it may go over in the excuse me, that it, and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to you and your ancestors, thrusting you all thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. So right there in the beginning of this like little section here, he says, Listen. Serve him, take oaths in his name. Like, fear the Lord God, serve him only, and take oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods. Um, And basically, Christ is like quoting this. He's saying, listen, don't worship anything else. God is jealous. God gets angry. Don't worship anything else. And so Christ quotes this same Deuteronomy thing that he's quoted several times. Um, And this time he says, listen, God said don't worship other gods. It's it's a big no-no. I'm not worshiping anything but God. Um, and so um, Satan is, is pushed away at that point. Now, I don't think Satan gave up. In fact, I'd argue very definitively he didn't because we see where Satan does this very direct approach. It's that approach that everybody from the 80s thought was going to happen, right? You know, where like, oh, look, I, you know, my... I, when I was a kid, I, I knew this kid who was playing Dungeons and Dragons, and I thought about playing this game with him. And I talked to somebody I mentioned, and they referred me to a pastor who gave me an article about how if I sit down and roll the dice once, I was instantly going to be faced with Satan and brought into worship. Which, I, I don't know, probably wouldn't have happened, right? Like, but we look for that, like, where is he? How is he tempting me? Um, We jump forward to Matthew 16. This is the same book. And I'm going to argue Matthew did this on purpose. This is an intentional parallel. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now watch this. Peter took him aside and and began to rebuke him, saying, Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. And so Peter pulls him aside and says, you don't have to die. What are you talking about? You don't have to suffer. You don't have to do this. Like, you're God. And in fact, actually, this is right after, you know, in the preceding section um, where Jesus says, well, who do people say I am, right? And Peter says, well, you're Christ. You're the son of the living God. 
Like Peter knew who he was. He had no doubt. And then the very next thing he says, hey, but you are the son of God. You don't have to die. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to this. You don't have to that. Does it sound familiar? Because earlier it was, you know, over and over again, if you're really the son of God, if you're really the son of God, and then you can skip over that cross thing. You can have the whole world, all you have to do. And Peter says, it'll never happen. You don't have to do this. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Because oftentimes, now watch this, oftentimes temptation doesn't come out of the mouth of the devil himself standing in front of us. 99% of the time it comes out of the TV. It comes out of, you know, your neighbor's mouth. It comes out of, you know, the slogan at the top of the magazine as you walk by it and you say, hey, look, that's a magazine for men. Um, it comes out of um, sometimes our own inclination. I don't have to do this. I could do this and it'd be fine. Oh, it's just this one time. It's just this one look. Oh, I'll just glance. Oh, I'll just buy this one thing, you know, that I shouldn't. Or I'll just, you know, like just this once. The reason I talk about that and the reason I'm emphasizing that is um, is because we can get stuck in this idea that real temptation isn't the little things. That the little sins aren't a big deal, right? That the little, like, failings, the little stumblings, the little turning away, they're not a big deal. In reality, a lot of times, they're a huge deal. And they're a step in the wrong direction. Um, I was reading about uh, how ships, sailing ships, would get lost at sea. And the way they would get lost was never, ever, ever when a huge wind came along and turned the ship at a 90-degree angle. And then they kept sailing, right? The way ships would get lost is there'd be a little cross breeze. And over the course of several hours, they would turn two degrees. And then over the course of several more hours, they would turn two more degrees. And over the course of several days, they would maybe turn one or two more degrees. And then they might have a busy, windy day where it turns them a little further. And very slowly, in bits and pieces, they turn. And having faced off, what, 10 degrees? That's enough to get you really lost, right? That's enough to get you really heading where you're not going. Um, in reality, the little temptations are oftentimes what screw us up. The little temptations are what mess us up. I remember when I, uh, when I began to deal with years ago when I, I was dealing with my drinking problem, like 15 years ago now, which is a long time, um, I, I remember asking, how did I get here? And it wasn't that I woke up one day and drank too much. It wasn't one day I woke up and I started lying to everybody I knew. It was, it was a little bit, right? And then the next day it was a little more. And the next day it was a new area where I was like, well, I'm just going to cross this line this one time. And before you know it, it overtakes you. And I don't think that's unique to me. I, I talk to a lot of guys who fall into pornography use, and that is, it's just a little bit. 
It's just a little bit. It's just a little bit. And it grows and it grows and it grows. And before you know it, it's out of control. Or people who have spending problems or people who um, become judgmental or people who become um, unforgiving or people who become bitter and angry or like overly critical or people who fall into false worship or people who turn Christianity into a fandom they live out and not a like way of life following the Lord. Like it's just a little bit at a time. So Jesus goes on. He says, then Jesus said to my disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone who to gain their whole, excuse me, to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Um, Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, um, and then it will reward each person according to what he has done. Now, there's something cool here. Watch this. Every one of us faces the same temptations that Christ went through. Like, we get that out of Hebrews, right? Hebrews says that, like, we don't have a high priest that can't relate to our struggle because he faced every temptation and overcame them. And so he knows what we're going through. He understands our struggle. Now, if we apply that and we look at this, like, is it easy to focus on the things of this world rather than God? What do you think, guys? How many of y'all struggle with that on a daily basis, right? Like, (laughs) how many of y'all are struggling on that right now because I'm just talking way too much? Um, how easy is it to say, well, God promised me this. Maybe I should push that. Maybe I should use God to get what I want. Maybe I should, like, like it's easy to do, right? It's easy, and I think one of the most common ways we do it, which is weird, I know God forgives me, so it doesn't matter this one time. Anybody ever say that? Well, I'm forgiven, so... I can still struggle and fall into sin sometimes and, you know, or I'll say sorry later and he'll just forgive me. And in reality, it's a self-deception. Um, it's jumping off the cliff and saying, well, he's going to catch me. You know, or I can go close to this temptation. It'll be okay. I can talk this way. I can live this way. I can walk this way and it'll be acceptable. But in reality, we're just testing God. We're pushing the limit. Um, now watch this. As it relates to bow down, Right. Um, the passage in Deuteronomy, and I feel bad that I've gone this long because like, this is the part I'm really excited about and it took me forever to get there. Um, in the passage in Deuteronomy, he's talking about a particular thing that happened in the Exodus. Moses goes up on the mountain and he's there for like a month and a half. And while he's up there, all the people of Israel gather up and they're like, man, that Moses guy is taking a really long time to get back. He probably died up there. Let's make an idol. And so they make an idol. What was it? calf right and they make this idol and they're setting out to worship it and they're like Aaron who is Moses brother-in-law because your in-laws always do the dumbest stuff um, Aaron um, help us do this and Aaron says well we're going to have a feast and we're going to worship the Lord through this idol now watch this all of these people had lived in pagan Egypt where everybody worshiped idols forever They didn't know anything about who God was, but they knew idols. They knew statues. They knew worshiping stuff, and they were all about it. And so what um, Aaron does is he stands in the middle, and he says, well, I can't let you guys worship Ra. Like, we ain't going to do that. That's not acceptable, right? Or like when we get into um, 
the promised land. We're not going to worship, you know, Baal like the Canaanites. We're not doing that. That's not okay. So we're going to worship God. But all this statue is, is the cow that God rides on. Because all the gods ride on stuff, right? Like, how do they get where they're going if they don't have something to ride on? And so we're not worshiping God. We're worshiping his car. It's okay because we're still worshiping God. We're just changing it a little bit. Like, and that's like if you read the passage, he says we're we're worshiping the Lord. Here it is, and like most theologians read that and they'll say, like a lot of the rabbis took the same. They were worshiping God. They were just worshiping the cow that he rode on. That's all the calf was. It's just God's. It's just God's ride. And what they had done was they took God and they made him palatable. The biggest temptation most of us face on a daily basis in our culture is to take Jesus and turn him into someone else and say, I'm still worshiping Jesus, but he's the Jesus that forgives everyone no matter what. And you don't even have to follow him and you'll still go to heaven. Right? I, I have on many occasions heard people say, I, the God I worship would never send a flood. What does that mean? Well, then the God you worship ain't this one. That's bowing down to something that isn't God. That's an easy thing to do, isn't it? The God I worship doesn't care what I do in my bedroom, doesn't care what I do on the Internet. The God I worship wants me to be happy and wouldn't expect me to follow some rules to be like that would make me unhappy. The God I worship forgives me no matter what. How many of y'all have heard that? How many of y'all have read the harder passages in the scriptures and said, you know, that may not be a thing that applies to me. I'm not talking about like eating shellfish and all that. That's a theological point we're not going to get into. But we look at it and we say, well, I'm supposed to love my neighbors and forgive people. I'm supposed to forgive my enemies and pray them? I'm supposed to serve people who, like, mistreat me? Well, forget that. <laughs> I'm not really supposed to do that because I'm supposed to announce God's judgment on those folks. And if I don't announce God's judgment, then I'm not doing the right thing. This is the Jesus I worship. But the problem is Jesus ain't changing. We're shifting the target. The Jesus I worship gives me whatever I want. He's Santa. He's a cosmic vending machine. I've got to say these prayers this number of time, you know, prayer seven, and here comes my blessing. Nope. If you just bow down to me, I'll give you everything. But that's a temptation we face. We don't have an organ, thank God. I, I like organ music. Actually, I listen to it. My wife was in the car with me while I was listening to it and driving yesterday. I'm not that guy. But I've heard sermons recently where people said, you know, if you stop using the organ and you switch to a guitar, you're not worshiping God. What's the idol? Well, Jesus played an organ and he wore a tie. No, that's changing Jesus. But it, it's easy to do. It's easy to do. It's easy to do. It's easy to shift. It's easy to change focus and to drift degree by degree. And eventually, we're there. We all face this temptation. We all do. 
every, every, every day. We do. We're tempted to worship our families. We're tempted to turn Jesus into someone he's not. We're tempted to worship stuff. I have a great line from Augustine that I'm going to use before I finish up. Idolatry is worshiping anything that should be used or using anything that should be worshipped. So if you worship anything that isn't God, your money, your bank account, your comfort, that amazing bed we laid down in yesterday, that's idolatry. If you turn to God and say, you must do things my way, you must be who I say you are, that's idolatry. The temptation that Jesus faced is one that you and I face. It's one that you and I deal with every day. My challenge for you today is to ask yourself, what am I worshiping that isn't God? Even if it's the God I think I'm worshiping, right? What am I chasing after? Is it entertainment? Is it this? Is it that? Because there are all sorts of things that we worship. And one of the easiest ways to know is when I get angry about something, what do I turn to? Do I jump on Facebook and complain about it? Do I get wound up about how my political party is going to beat up those guys I hate? Do I... I I mean, honestly, for me, one of the biggest things, I have a stressful day and I you know, start rifling through the kids' Halloween candy because food is one of my idols, and it's fun, right? Anything I turn to first when I'm not turning to God first is standing in the way. So I'm going to close in prayer. My challenge to you is, what are you worshiping? What are you bowing down and giving the whole world to? How are you tempting Christ to bow down to you in exchange for your life? Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us. I know I talked a long time, Lord, but I, I, I pray that despite my long-windedness that, that your spirit moved. Um, I pray that people were challenged today. I pray that they, they looked inward and found ways that, that um, they were turning, ways that they'd been tricked. Um, Lord God, because I know Satan doesn't come to us like we thought he did in the 80s. I you know, I know that our enemy comes to us um, looking like a supermodel on the cover of a magazine or, or looking like a comfortable new bed. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us to wake up from the slumber that we've fallen into, um, to strip out the idols in our lives and to pursue you above all else. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Have a good day.